Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtless. This show is heard on WBCQ The Planet every Tuesday and Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also get it on Podomatic.com. Just put in Camp Constitution and the show should come up. Also, our YouTube channel. We post most of these shows on Camp Constitution's YouTube channel. So please visit our YouTube channel, subscribe, and share the various videos. We are very close to the 1 million mark of uh, views, so we're very happy about that. And this this program is brought to you by Camp Constitution, which, among other things, runs a week-long family camp. And this year's camp will take place in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, at the Lakeside Christian Camp and Retreat Center from July 28th to August 3rd. And we have a, uh, a guest on the line, uh, Christian Despigna. I hope I'm pronouncing that last name properly. Christian, how are you? How are you? Hello? Can you hear me? Oh, I hear you fine. Yes, thank you. How's everything? Oh, pretty well, thank you. Thank you for coming on with short notice. Uh, no, it's my pleasure. Uh, yeah, I had the uh, pleasure of listening to a, a, a Christian speech or presentation, I should say, PowerPoint presentation, on his latest book, Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero. That's a long title, but it's a good book. It's a good book. Uh, Christian was speaking at the uh, Massachusetts Sons of the Revolution annual uh, lunch luncheon and meeting uh, in Quincy, Massachusetts, and uh, we did upload that presentation on our YouTube channel. Well, Christian, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then a little bit, uh, or not a whole lot, about uh, what what prompted you to write a book about this great man. It began about 20 years ago. Um, I had come across a book written about Warren by one of his nieces, and I found it in a secondhand bookstore. I believe it was published in 1835, and it just really uh, sparked my interest. And the project really started to come to life when I was an undergraduate at Columbia University, and I did my senior thesis on Dr. Joseph Warren. So I've spent the better part of 20 years researching and writing about the man and trying to uncover as many new finds and documents and artifacts and material culture pieces as I could. And you went to a lot of primary sources instead of uh, where some historians uh, might have read 10 books on a subject and then write a, an 11th book based on all of the other books that have already been written. Well, you know, there's been so little written on him. And like I said, I, I, you know, I hope Warren is making some sort of a comeback, experiencing a renaissance. But I knew I had to go where other historians had not gone. And so I really had to branch out into the papers of his colleagues, his friends, his associates. I looked through probably tens of thousands of newspapers from all throughout New England, wow. New York, and I went as far as into the 20th century. And, and that really proved fruitful because 
there were several events, including the Bunker Hill Centennial Parade, that really had some great pieces within some newspaper articles and some leads I was able to track down. So, you know, I also was able to find the direct Warren descendants and every book and every piece of literature written on Warren for the past 150 years has claimed that they are extinct when they are not. So connecting with them and having them open their archives to me and their family heirlooms allowed me to really approach this project in a way and deconstruct it in a way that no one had done before. Now, you, I think at the presentation, you made reference some, to some find and someone referred to that, oh, that's that general or some general from the, you know, years ago. Uh, do you recall that exactly? I'm not, I wasn't giving the verbatim, yes, so, but it was something so like that. So there was yeah. a, you know, I had come across a picture, actually it was a crude sketch of a mourning ring that Joseph Warren had had made when his wife, Elizabeth Hutan Warren, had died in 1773. And it was a mourning ring. And there were 16 precious stones around it. And I started doing more research, more research. I mentioned it to the family historian and he said yes i remember hearing about this ring when i was a child from my grandmother they believed that it was possibly in the possession of cousins of theirs and when i reached out to the cousins and when the family historian reached out to the cousins it had turned out that they had talked about i think it was a box or two that they had had that they had mentioned that contained some of the possessions from that general and that they had had a home break in several years earlier and the boxes oh. had been stolen what a shame there's so much good history right? lost yeah for lack of people's interest i think i told you about the um the flag the um the old the bedford battle flag which they believe is the oldest flag of north america Bedford, Massachusetts, carried into the Battle of Concord in Lexington, and then a uh, hundred years later or so, somebody had it as some kind of rag or something that was used. And do you know what that is? <laughs> so it's uh, it's great that uh, you know that stuff could be restored. Well, tell us um, now. I have I'm I'm blessed to live right here in Boston, and you know I've in, been interested in history, so I was familiar with Dr. Warren. A dear late friend of mine wrote a nice little piece, which I want to get to you. It's called For Doctors Who Are Too Busy, and it's just the story of Dr. Warren. This, the, he went to school in Roxbury Latin, which used to be in Roxbury, Massachusetts. It's now in West Roxbury. Uh, basically, uh, Tom Brady could probably throw a football to the place, and the statue of him uh, at the school, which used to be in Roxbury in, in, in town, I didn't, near the school, and they, they moved in here in the 60s, I think. And he's buried in Forest Hill Cemetery, which is about five miles from me. And, of course, I'm just a short distance from Bunker Hill. So tell us, uh, uh, give, give us some background about this great man, you know, from his early days up until his, um, his heroic death. Right. Well, the incredible thing is that Warren was president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. He was head of the Committee of Safety. He was a grandmaster of the Scottish Rite. Masons in North America. He delivers two Boston massacre orations in 1772 and 1775. He's writing political tracts. He's writing narratives, polemical arguments, and sadly, he's not remembered. I mean, he's involved in every major insurrectionary act in the 10 years leading up to revolution, from the Stampback riots to the Battle of Bunker Hill. I mean, he grew up in Roxbury. His father was an apple farmer and a selectman. 
Warren attended Roxbury Latin, which was the precursor institution to Harvard. He gets accepted into Harvard. He does his undergraduate studies. And really, Harvard is a social oasis for him. It's where he makes a lot of connections. He starts networking. And he's, he's rubbing elbows with a lot of the sons of powerful loyalist families and politicians. And when he leaves Harvard, I think that's one of the reasons he was drawn to Freemasonry is because he is sort of back in Roxbury out of that social oasis. So he joins Freemasonry with and meets men like Paul Revere and John Hancock, and he starts to establish his medical practice after apprenticing other, under Dr. James Lloyd, who was his medical mentor. And really that was Warren's first mentor because Warren's learning um, how to become a doctor, the nuances of a bedside manner. He's learning the most up-to-date medical treatments, how to perform smallpox inoculations, mm. obstetrics. And under Lloyd's tutelage, Warren's also learning how to become a gentleman, how to conduct himself. And Lloyd is one of the most popular and prominent doctors in the Boston area. And he's also highly socially connected, politically connected. He's wealthy. He's a gentleman. He's a horticulturalist. So Warren is really learning how to not only become a doctor, but how to become a gentleman, and he's expanding his network. And what's also important about Lloyd is that Lloyd is a loyalist. So the fact that Warren's main mentor was a loyalist kind of goes against the grain with Warren joining the Patriot Movement, because when you look at a lot of the primary source documents, Warren's receiving a lot of patronage and financial support from loyalists. He's appointed as the almshouse physician of Boston from 1769 to 72, and he earns almost a thousand pounds just from that. He's appointed as an administrator of the Nathaniel Wheelwright Estate, who was a wealthy merchant who had claimed bankruptcy. So. For Warren to cast his lot with the Patriot Whigs at that time was financial suicide, but Warren is also a very attractive figure to both sides of the political divide because he's got connections, friends, and networks with both Loyalists and Patriot Whigs. But by the time Warren does cast his lot with the Whigs, his political philosophy is already strongly entrenched. Like I said, he's involved in every major insurrectionary act from the Stamp Act riots to the Boston Massacre. Um, just in 75, when he delivers his second Boston Massacre oration, British soldiers are attempting to assassinate anyone who delivers that oration, mm. and Warren actually volunteers to deliver it and delivers a fiery speech. Again, Warren's almost killed at Lexington and Concord. It was his intelligence efforts that set off that shot heard around the world. We have new primary source documents talking about intelligence reports being sent to Dr. Warren. We have letters of his being sent to Samuel Adams, John Adams, and John Hancock at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, where he's talking about this intelligence network. And he's killed at Bunker Hill. And, that, and that's the tragedy, because that the events of that one day, his death at Bunker Hill, has really overshadowed all his resistance activities. And when he's remembered at all today, it's it's solely as the martyr of Bunker, Bunker Hill. Hill. And I mean, that's that's in a nutshell. I know we've covered ten years of history pretty quickly, but that's basically well, it's it interesting. in a nutshell. Um, one of the there's a few was a few takeaways that from your presentation that I got. One of them was 
you said uh, it should the midnight ride of Paul Revere should have been called the midnight ride of uh, of Dr. Warren, not because he actually wrote, but he was sort of the man who engineered everything and organized. And Paul Revere didn't just ride into the night without it. It was basically a network of other riders, so the, the alarm was spread. Uh, I don't know how many miles. Galway to Ringe, New Hampshire was about 75 miles away. So that was a very intricate network of people. It wasn't just one guy riding. And I, I think you might have said, too, that had he lived, he may have been a bigger name than George Washington. That was quite a statement to make. Well, and that's the thing. So two of the most prominent loyalist figures in Massachusetts at the time was, was Governor Thomas Hutchinson and Peter Oliver. And when they found out that Warren had been killed at Bunker Hill, Thomas Hutchinson had, and this is a, a quote, said that had Warren lived, he would have become the Cromwell of North America. And Peter Oliver wow. had said that had Warren lived, Washington would have been an obscurity. So these are two mm -hmm. men who were very familiar with, and you know, and let's keep in mind that Boston was a hub of revolutionary activity in the colony. So, and these are two prominent loyalist, powerful politicians that knew Warren personally and experienced those resistance activities, all those events, the Boston Massacre, the Tea Party. They knew of it and experienced it, but their comments in 1775 were talking about how powerful and important Warren was to that political patriot movement. Now, and I, and I think I mentioned this, and I think sometimes we get caught up in this, and we're all guilty of this. Sometimes we, can, mm. we tend to look at history with a 21st century mindset. And when we're looking at this time period, we have to realize that it's, again, it's, it's 1775 Boston when Warren's killed. So George Washington has, has not really arrived on the scene yet. He will arrive in Cambridge in early right. July. July. He's been yeah. appointed general of the Continental uh, Army. But when he arrives in Cambridge, he's not well known. He's actually unknown. There's two primary source letters that I read in the collections of the Massachusetts Historical Society where two soldiers from the Bunker Hill battle, one writes, um, a new general arrived today. Doesn't mention Washington mm -hmm. by name. And then another one writes, mm -hmm. um, a General Washington arrived. I never heard this name before. So again, mm -hmm. at that point in 1775, Washington is not Washington. He will eventually become Washington. But when he arrives, he sort of has to fill the shoes of Warren. And there's no question that Washington would have emulated Warren's battlefield heroics. I mean, a man of Washington's character, his ethics, his morals, the fact that Warren paid the ultimate price for his country on the battlefield for the ideals of liberty and freedom that he had been fighting for for years, Washington would have admired that. He would have emulated that. He obviously knew Warren from Warren's Suffolk resolves when they were unanimously mm -hmm. adopted at the First Continental Congress. Washington would have known that Warren left behind four orphans. So, again, it's not the miraculous victory at Yorktown in 1781. It's, it's Boston 1775, and Washington has not been involved in a military conflict, let alone a successful one, in almost 20 years. Since the uh, French and Indian Wars, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I attended the reenactment, the Tea Party reenactment, and even though Warren was not one of the men that dropped tea in the harbor, he was there at the Old South Meeting House, uh, you know, orating in defense of the, you know, ship getting the tea out of there. 
Uh, can you talk about his involvement in the Tea Party? Right. So, I mean, and that's the thing. He's, he's not listed among the active participants, but we also have to keep in mind that a lot of that was shrouded in secrecy and mystery. But what we do know is that the month leading up to the Tea Party, Warren is one of the most active patriots involved in planning for this destruction of the tea as it was known then, because Warren is having meetings with several prominent merchants, and let's keep in mind that two of the tea consignees were friends of Warren's because he had gone to Harvard with them, and that's two mm -hmm. of uh, Thomas Hutchinson's sons. Now, sons, right. two of the ship owners, a, Francis, a Captain Francis Roch and a John Rowe, were also medical patients of Warren's. Warren was friends with John Rowe. John Rowe was also a mason. Uh, the fact that Warren was also part owner of Hutan's Wharf that he had inherited from his father-in-law connected him to that seaside population. So that's new information that I found from primary source documents, the fact that Warren owned part of that wharf, which would have involved him a little bit more in that seafaring populace, which would have connected him a little bit more. But again, we see Warren having meetings with Richard Clark, who is the father of John Copley, a prominent merchant, meetings with John Rowe, and to say that Warren was not involved in, in, in this planning of what to do with the tea, I just think it's, it's naive because Warren was at Old South Meeting House. He lived in the area. And if you're going to state that Warren did not have any participation at all in the planning of the destruction of the tea or what we call now the Tea Party, then you have to believe that once that meeting at Old South Meeting House concludes, then we're going to believe that Warren just went home or went somewhere else. And, and I'm just, mm -hmm. I just, I just, from the primary source papers and documents, everything would lead me to the conclusion that Warren was definitely a primary mover and shaker involved in that destruction of the tea, having the meetings leading up to that, you know, famous December 16th incident. Now, you mentioned uh, in your presentation, I'm only, I've only got to the first 50 pages of your book. He's just graduated from Harvard uh, for, you know, in your book. But you mentioned um, that he got this, his notion for liberty and independence from an, an incident that happened with his dad in a land bank. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, so, and that was the thing, right? We mentioned earlier that by all rights, it was financial suicide for Warren to cast his lot with the, with the Whig movement. But... And I tried to figure out, well, why did he do this? I mean, if he was benefiting financially, if a lot of his early mentors and, and friends were part of this loyalist crowd, these powerful merchants, these powerful politicians, what made Warren cast his lot with those patriots? And there were two incidents that I had come across that made me believe that these were incidents that were known within the Warren family. And one was a book that had been written by his uh, maternal great-grandfather, a Robert Califf, that was called More Wonders of the Invisible World. And what this was, this was a refutation of a book written by the Mather family, Con Mather, called Wonders of the Invisible World that was promoting the uh, Salem witch hysteria. Now, the book was so incendiary and you have to keep in mind that at this time in the late 17th century, the Mathers were the most powerful family in the Bay Colony. And to, to go against them would, was, just didn't make much sense. So 
Warren's great-grandfather couldn't even get the book published here in the colonies, so he wound up getting it published in England. And the Mather family was so incensed that Increase Mather, who was president of Harvard at the time, I believe, actually burned a copy of the book in Harvard Yard. Now, by the way, is that is that book available in some format like a Google in, Google Books or something? Yeah, I believe Today, you can. You know? And it, yeah. I think it was published in the 1690s, if I'm not mistaken. But the fact that that Warren's maternal grandfather had taken on one of the most powerful families in the Bay Colony. This actually helped to stop the spread of this hysteria because really without this book, that, that, that witch hysteria probably would have spread to other areas in, in the Bay in Colony Boston. and definitely in Boston. Yeah. So the fact that Warren's maternal grandfather had taken such a strong stance, I mean, obviously that story was passed down through the generations. Warren would have been aware of that. But the other incident I trace it to was called the Land Bank Controversy. And this was in the late 1730s, early 1740s. There was a scarcity of coin. So a group of men got together, farmers, artisans, and they printed paper notes that was banked, backed by land and real estate. Now, obviously, this was in uh, contradistinction to what the powerful merchants, the political elites wanted. So what they did was the powerful merchants reached out to Parliament for help in dissolving the land bank. And that's exactly what happens, but as a consequence, the people involved in the land bank, most of them are financially ruined. Now, we know that Samuel Adams' father, Deacon Adams, was one of the principal founders of that land bank, and he is financially ruined. And a lot of historians point to that incident as one of the reasons why Samuel Adams became so vehemently anti-Crown, anti-Parliament. Now, what we didn't know up to this point that I found in the primary source records is that Warren's grandfather... Uh, Dr. Samuel Stevens was one of the principal investors in the land bank, and for 20 years, he's being hounded in the courts, he's being sued. There's a letter that he writes to the court pleading with them for mercy, that he's being financially destroyed, he's selling land, he's selling uh, personal items, farm animals, just to try and pay off these debts now. This definitely would have influenced the Warren household and their belief that Parliament was sticking their hands into the colonists' pockets. So this really would have been an early incident where, where the family would have been anti-Parliament, seeing how it financially destroyed Warren's grandfather. And what's significant about the relationship between Warren and his grandfather is Warren's own father dies when he's a freshman at Harvard College when he's 14, and he becomes close to his grandfather. So his grandfather is one of his early mentors. He won, I think he dies in 1767, and Warren was very close to him. So this would have been a, a real sticking point to the family, this financial catastrophe and it really influenced Warren and I think it really not only is it a common denominator that bonded Warren with Sam Adams but I believe it's one of the reasons that helped Warren gravitate to the Whig movement that's that's fascinating um, you were mentioning too that uh, what's interesting is that he was a student at Harvard at 14 which today most people aren't until 19 or 20 before they're off at college and uh, there wasn't a, there wasn't a Harvard Medical School, was there? Until um, it was his brother that founded it, correct? Yeah, his brother was one of the founders. His brother John Warren was one of Warren's um, early medical uh, 
apprentices. He he actually winds up apprenticing with a Dr. Holyoke out in uh, I believe it was uh, Salem, Massachusetts, and that was the son of uh, the president of Harvard, Edward Holyoke. And Edward Holyoke was the president of Harvard when Warren attended. But yeah, there was no medical school, and that's why, in order to get become a doctor, you either had to apprentice with a physician in the colonies, or you had to go to the glittering capitals in Europe and apprentice, do an apprenticeship there, and then come back to the colonies and set up shop. And I think wasn't it his nephew, uh, uh, Warren's nephew, that was the surgeon the first time, uh, one of the first times ether was used successfully, anyway, Publix, um, at the. Um, Ether Dome at um, Mass General Hospital. Yes, Dr. John Collins Warren, right. Well, that's pretty. So it's interesting that we knew that, but the, you were saying earlier they thought that his uh, lineage was non-existent. There was um, any lineage here. And... Well, that was the. So we've we've always known that the uh, indirect line has existed and and boasts uh, a very prominent medical dynasty. I, I believe it's. I want to say it's eight or nine generations of Harvard doctors via the bloodline of his brother John Warren. But again, you know, Warren's own direct bloodline has said has said to have been extinct. And and I think it was you know every book recently published on Warren and going back, like I said, around 100, 150 years ago, claims that the direct line became extinct. And and that's also a tragedy because the direct line boasts an impressive military. Succession. There's uh, the current trustee of the Copley Warren painting at Museum of Fine Arts in Boston is a Dr. Carolyn Matthews. She's the current trustee, and she's a doctor at Baylor University, and she awards an annual Dr. Joseph Warren Prize. Mm. I believe that there's been a a Warren direct descendant that has served in every military conflict since the Civil War to the present day. There were six West Point graduates. There's, uh, I believe, uh, seven or eight commissioned military officers, including a general, uh, four or five non-commissioned officers. Right now, they're, they're currently serving. So, and, and I think more important than that is when, when, you, when you reach out to the existing descendants and you're, you're allowed access to the, to the documents and the material culture pieces and you know, family trees. It just opens up a window onto one that's never been opened before. And, you know, it, it updates a lot of the past scholarship. It corrects some of the errors in the past scholarship. And really, it, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to tell this story, right? I mean, there, there's a reason there haven't been many books written on Warren, and that's because a lot of his personal and political papers were destroyed purposely and by accident. There were two yeah. accidental fires yeah. in the mid-19th century. So anything that we can get our hands on about Warren is so precious. And, you know, and that's been one of the problems. I, you know, I think I mentioned this during the talk that there's almost a, a glass, half-empty approach to the Warren scholarship. And one of his biographers in 1961 actually wrote that the, the, his book was intended solely as a new look at Warren's public life because a personal belletristic biography of Warren cannot be written. And again, so anything we can find on Warren, any, any new document, any new artifact, any, mm. any material culture piece is, is so precious and valuable because we know so little about this man and we know so little about his wife and his future fiancée. 
his children, so that any time again, I, I, I really can't underscore that enough, that when, when we can get our hands on something, it, it really opens up a new window to Warren. And I was fortunate. I found dozens and dozens of, of, of new items and documents that had not been seen for centuries, which, which really it allowed me to deconstruct the Warren story in a way that's never been done before. We just have a few minutes left. Give us a little recap of his death at the Battle of Bunker Hill. So I think the most important thing that we can take away from Bunker Hill is that Warren is nominated as a major general of the Provincial Army three days prior to the Battle of Bunker Hill. When he shows up at Bunker Hill, he asks to be put where the fighting is going to be the most brutal. Now, both Israel Putnam and William Prescott the two officers in command both defer to Warren and offer to yield to him. And he declines and says, I'm only here to help. Now, the issue I had with this is that we have primary documents talking about Warren showing up at the battle with a, with a musket, with pistols, with a sword, and mm. yet every account you read about him, it's almost as if, well, Warren's there, but he's kind of cheerleading and, you know, encouraging the fighting, but we have a primary source letter talking about Warren actually taking aim at the British officers coming up Breed's Hill, and it's unfortunate that he's one of the last to leave that redoubt, and unfortunately he's killed seconds and after the battle ends. And again, I mean, it wasn't a pretty scene. We, we have letters from both sides of that battle, from both British soldiers and American soldiers talking about the, the sheer brutality of those British soldiers once they climb over that redoubt, beating in the heads of the wounded patriots with the butts of their guns, stabbing them with their bayonets, and sadly Warren's body was mutilated, and he stripped of his clothing, he stripped of all his personal items, including a, a Bible that he carried on him. There were wow. intelligence reports that he had in his coat that were taken by the British, which, which later led to an arrest. And again, that one battle overshadows 10 years of resistance activities. And, and again, sadly, when he's remembered at all, it's, it's solely as that martyr of Bunker Hill. And it, and it really is where a shame can, because... Where, yeah. where can listeners uh, get a copy of your excellent book? Oh, they can. It's in Barnes and Noble. It's on Amazon. It's in independent bookstores. It's on audiobook. Uh, the paperback will be coming out on June 11th. So we're excited about that because it's actually coming out on Warren's birthday. Oh, that's right. So it's called Founding Martyr: The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's Lost Hero, by Christian Despigna. Do you have a website by any chance, too? We do. It's uh, www.foundingmartyr.com, and there's a list of places I'll be speaking and some, some other blurbs on the book and things like that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on, and uh, we'll hope to catch you down the road. Uh, you've been listening oh, I appreciate to you having Camp me on, Co Hal. Thank you so much. Yeah, God bless you. You've been listening to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shitless. And until next week, uh, may God richly bless you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.